I'm going to do exactly what I did at 9 a.m. and take stock of the room because this is a really beautiful site. We've got family here and family here and family here. And uh, hey, Steve, how are you? Uh, I guarantee that you could go anywhere in the world and not be in a room that is as beautiful and special as the Evanston Vineyard. So it's a joy that we're here together this morning. Uh, just like Ted said, I have an Advent message. So we're going to talk about Advent, and then um, at the end we'll spend some time together. So uh, I look around the room, and I realize that we're all at very different stages of life. But I think one thing it means to be human is that we've all experienced receiving news. And we've received some good news, some wonderful news. And unfortunately, part of what it means to be human is we've had experience receiving heartbreaking news, right? And today we're going to be talking about good news. Uh, but the reason I preface the different types of news we receive is that sometimes we have like different responses to news, right? And so that's why we have these sentences that people think is like really helpful to build up to news. <laughs> we have things like, would you like the good news or the bad news? Uh, we have, uh, have some news to share. And we kind of like try and warm the room up a little bit. And uh, the text that we're in today, you won't see any of that, which is a good thing. So I want to share a story about how I respond to receiving news. <laughs> and part of that is informed by my family of origin and how we share news. So uh, some of you have met my dad before. He is as Australian as Australian gets. His accent is so thick. It's so hard to understand. But uh, he is more conversational and more outgoing than I am. So he has never met a stranger. He's absolutely fascinated by everyone's life story, every piece of news, and he listens with like such intensity. Uh, so that means that every time he hears something, it's news, right? People need to hear it. And uh, the majority of our communication right now is still on FaceTime. And for any of you out there, maybe of a similar generation, that FaceTime's parents, kind of in their 70s, 80s, like you'll know sometimes how that goes. So uh, I jump on FaceTime and I see my dad's head, like just this much. And that's like when he's tilted it down from the, from the ceiling. Uh, and within the first 30 seconds, he usually starts with something like this. So mate, mate, me, Jess. So mate, <clears throat> got some sad news. And I always brace myself. You know that feeling? You just brace yourself. And then... He says, I just got back from the doctor. And I'm like, oh, I knew something was coming. All right, here we go. I have some sad news. I got back from the doctor. And then I hear my mom off screen, because like they can never be on the same screen together, right? There's always my mom here. And she's like, don't say anything. Don't. She doesn't need to know. Now, that doesn't like inspire any confidence, right? Does this feel familiar? Like, do people have parents like this? It's like, don't tell her. And so I'm like, Dad, you need to, like, right now, what is it? Well, I was at the doctor, and I'm talking to this bloke, this man next to me, and he says, the sad news is the coffee shop next door is closing down. And this is like weekly, friends. This is not like, this is weekly. 
And the reason my mom is in the background saying, like, don't say anything, it's purely about the relevance of it. It's not. And then my dad says, well, I thought you would want to know because we like to get coffee there. We go there together. And then I say, Dad, I don't go there. It's my brother. You take my brother there. So I share all this to say that um, how we hear news and how we deliver news is really important. Yeah? So like I said, rest assured today, we're only focusing on good news. And it's news that's really direct. And I would say not only is it good news, it's the best news that you'll ever hear. There's no other news that is better. So last week for the first Sunday in Advent, Ted shared that all of the passages that we'll explore together over these coming weeks have been taken from the lectionary. And we stepped into Advent by journeying last week through Mark 13. And if you were here, you may have recalled that this is kind of a strange passage to be talking about in Advent at Christmas time. Uh, and why is that? Well, it centers on what happens at the end of time. And when we're in Advent, we usually associate things as being new and all about birth and life. But if you recall the anchor of the message, it was that hope arrives in the person of Jesus. Okay? And we were encouraged to hear that the end does not belong to doom, but to Jesus, the Son of Man. And it is this dual reference to the Messiah's birth at a certain moment in history, uh, but also to his future coming at the end of the ages that is at the heart of Advent. So we're holding two things, birth and the second coming at the end. So today we stay in the Gospel of Mark, like we were in last week, but we turn back a few pages to the very beginning. So some opening remarks on Mark. One of the key characteristics of this gospel is its brevity. There is a breathtaking pace with which we move through the gospel from beginning to end. So unlike other gospels like Matthew and Luke, we find that there is no like lengthy retelling of Jesus' genealogy. We aren't treated to like beautiful songs from uh, Mary and Zechariah like we find in Luke. And there's no narrative of the birth story. So you're not hearing about manger and shepherd and all the beautiful parts of the nativity. Mark is direct and he gets straight to it. And I like that. I like the pace. I like the intensity. I like that there's kind of like no setting the scene. We just dive in. So that's what we're going to do now. We'll read the opening verses. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So we see here in the very, very early stages of the text that Mark is immediately beginning with, hey, I've got to tell you something, and it's good news. And to support that, he directly quotes from Malachi 3.1, that the Lord is sending a person or a messenger to prepare the way for Jesus, the Son of God. And at this stage, we know that someone's coming, but this messenger, they still don't have a name. 
And then Mark follows with the prophetic words from Isaiah 40, verse 3. This messenger is a voice of one calling in the wilderness. And what is the voice saying? The voice is saying, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So in these few short verses, even though there isn't a ton of detail, what I think there is a heaviness or a richness of is there is some anticipation and there is some mystery. We hear that an unnamed person that the prophets pointed to so long ago will finally be revealed. We finally get to meet him. And he's preparing the way for the long-awaited Messiah. It's a time of waiting and anticipation for people to meet God incarnate. And then again, very little fanfare, very little build-up. We turn to verse 4, and this mysterious messenger is revealed. Let's look. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, they went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Wow, there you have it, right? No matter how many times I read this passage, I still have questions. As we were reading through it, I'm sure many of you had questions too. We're thinking... There is this seemingly unknown man that just shows up on the scene. He comes from the wilderness. He draws crowds and he immediately begins preaching. And what do we hear is happening is people are listening. People are curious. They're gathering around him. They're like, who is this man? They are listening to everything that he says. He wastes no time. His message is strong and it's compelling. And guess what? It's working. How do we know it's working? It's because, well, people are repenting and they're being baptized. Now, it's important to note that this form of baptism, it was like a ritualized cleansing, like a water rite to undertake in order to become spiritually clean. It was like a baptism of preparation in order to be prepared for the Messiah. It's very different than our form of baptism today. As John is speaking to the masses, I think that surely there were a lot of people that didn't take him seriously, that viewed John with some skepticism. Yet, I love that Mark doesn't say, he doesn't really spend time on that. He just hones in and he focuses on the fruit of John's work. And the fruit is that people are hearing the message, they're taking it seriously, they're repenting, and they're being baptized. Friends, our God, Yahweh, creator God, he is a God who dresses his prophet in the skins of an animal. And then he boldly equips him to go out and to prepare hearts and to prepare minds to meet their Messiah. I love that. 
So that's the text. John is the last of the old covenant prophets. He arrives, he's on mission, he understands his assignment is to to prepare the way for Jesus. Uh, He's like softening the soil, he's breaking up the ground, he's getting people ready. So what's the linkage to Advent, you might be wondering? And what does this text about the mission of John the Baptist mean for us today? Well, I think that what John did is kind of a shared work. What I mean by shared work is that it was like an assignment or a responsibility that was like uniquely given to him. But I believe there's an invitation for all of us to share in it. He was marked and anointed uh, and called in a very special and very unique way as the foreteller for Jesus. But I think that We are all called to prepare the way for Jesus, not just during Advent, but in all the ordinary days ahead. Right now, it's like a really special season, right? Uh, But January's coming and February's coming. And those days are a little more plain and a little more ordinary, but uh, the assignment stays the same, to be people that are preparing the way for Jesus. We are those people who are just like John the Baptist. We are tasked to witness and point to Christ, to the Messiah, to the baby in the manger, to the God who takes on flesh. We are invited and challenged, hear that word, challenged, to be Advent people. Sometimes it's not easy. We are people who are called to wait on the Lord. We are people who are called to witness to others about his beauty and his might. We are people that tell others that the very same person who came once will be coming again and it's time to get ready. The good news is the person of hope is coming. So Advent, it draws us into this mystery of not only preparing our own hearts and minds for the coming of Jesus, but it invites us to become people who are preparing the way for him, for others in our life and in our world. And that's what we're going to spend some time exploring this morning. So this Advent, I think there are three lessons or three encouragements that we can draw from the early ministry of John the Baptist. And the first is the practice of repentance. John's message of repentance, it was directed to the listeners of the time, but uh, it's really important for us too. He was exhorting them at the time to prepare their hearts to receive Jesus, to begin this gradual process of shedding old ways of being as part of the journey toward becoming a new creation. So in many ways, this call to turn away and to turn our backs on things is also for us today, things that don't serve us. On this second Sunday of Advent, readers of the lectionary from every corner of the world, right now, as we gather here today, there are readers all over the world that are also gathering uh, who observe the lectionary, and they are looking at this text too. And I think that they are all being invited into the same thing that we are, which is to become people from the whole Judean countryside and be like all the people of Jerusalem, to begin to engage in repentance. So while Advent, it can be experienced as a season of color and light and joy, uh, we must take time to acknowledge the places where we still live and dwell in the shadows. 
to grapple with and confess the ways in which we haven't rightly worn the face or the name of Jesus. To repent for where we've fallen short, for hurtful words, for unkind behaviours, for uh, times that we have failed to love our neighbour as ourselves. We must remember and renew the spirit of our own baptism. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we were washed, were sanctified, were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So repentance connects us with the invitation we heard last week, which is to be ready. Do you remember that? And how do we do that? Well, consider this. Consider this question. Will we be people at the second advent who react with fear and trepidation? Or will we be people that react with awe and joy and wonder? I think a key determinant to how we respond is based on how we engage with the practices of confession and repentance. Let me unpack that a bit more. When we come to the Father and we confess our sins, we are reminded afresh of our utter need and dependence on Jesus. We are connected with his grace and his mercy. We remember that his finished work on the cross, it signals his unfailing and unconditional love for us. And this process helps us to become people who not only want to order our lives around righteous and just living, but it helps frame how we view the second advent. It invites us to eagerly anticipate the coming of Jesus, knowing that we won't be condemned, that there's no need to be fearful, but rather to joyously await the time when we will fully be reconciled and restored to him. Now, friends, that's good news. That is really good news. The second example we can follow from John the Baptist in these passages is a call to emulate his humility. Now, I think uh, one of the qualities I love about John the Baptist so much that I'm drawn to him is his humility, right? We have this expression these days. I don't know where it came from, but it's like, do you understand your assignment? understand my assignment. This is a great example of a man that understood his assignment. There's an expression that uh, it was kind of first like pointed together in uh, C.S. Lewis's work, Mere Christianity, on the nature of humility. And it's kind of been modified and packaged into a, a cutesy little phrase, but it's really powerful. And it goes like this. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Okay? True humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I think that's John. The first words that Mark quotes John as saying in this text are, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You just think for a moment, like, 
we have this picture of Jesus being like holy and wonderful and beautiful, and that is true, but he was also a man. And you imagine what those sandals and those straps look like, right? They were probably pretty dusty and pretty muddy. And John is still here saying, I'm still not even worthy to touch them. So in this passage, we see John yielding. What does it mean to yield? It means that you get out of the way, that you make room for, that you look ahead and then you think about elevating another person. He's using his voice, his prophetic voice to fulfill his calling. What I love about John is he doesn't want the limelight. He's on mission, and it all points to Jesus. Now, doesn't this sound like really counter to how our world, our modern 2023 world is? Uh, I feel like I see more uh, platforming, and more positioning, and more hustle, and more self-interest, and more self-promotion, rather than people championing and recognizing the call and the giftings and the humanity of other people. So in this text, I read it, and I don't know about you, but can you hear like that sincerity and that authenticity, like what John is saying, he deeply believes it. He deeply, deeply believes that he is not worthy. And you'll notice that I don't think it's self-deprecating. I don't think he's putting himself down. He just knows what is true. What is true is that Jesus is coming in all his radiance and all his splendor, and no one can truly be prepared to receive him. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist, he reiterates this posture declaring, he must become greater, I must become less. Or in other versions you might hear, uh, he must increase and I must decrease. So encouraged by this lens of honoring another, let's be Advent people who are clothed in humility. I think we do this two ways. The first is by demonstrating humility in relation to others. Some examples of this uh, is being willing to listen and sit with the lived experiences and the stories of other people. It's to carry an openness to be wrong. It's to ask for feedback. It's to be open, to be edited, to have people weigh in and to hold you to account. It's about considering and balancing the needs of your own with the needs of others. It's to ask for help when you need it. And I would say that it's to celebrate the wins of others and to champion their successes. So that's one way that John teaches us about humility in relation to others. But there's a second way. Uh, we must embody humiliation, uh, humility, I'm sorry. We must embody humility in relation to Jesus. We do this by acknowledging daily that we are helpless, we are powerless on our own, and that we cannot be the authors of our own salvation or our destiny. And a good litmus test for humility is when we examine our hearts and we consider, well, where do I attribute that success? Where do I attribute that win? Is that to myself as an individual or does it go straight to the Father? 
A final note, while John the Baptist is a really strong case example for humility, we must remember that the ultimate model of humility is found in the person of Jesus. Our humble King, Jesus, the one who went to the cross for you and for me. The one that was always looking to the Father with reverence, awe and wonder. Paul writes, being in very nature of God, he, Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You might recall about 18 months ago, our church... Uh, we had a new logo. We kind of rebranded and we have a new icon for our church. And about 18 months ago, we shared from the stage some of the thinking and the design that went into that. And uh, you might recall that one of the guiding metaphors for our church logo is Jesus as humble king and suffering servant. So you'll notice on your screen that in the middle, there is like a Grecian-style cross. And then the perimeter or the outside is an intertwined crown of thorns. You might just think it's like a slick logo that someone made in Photoshop, but uh, it's got some weight. It's got some beauty in it. It's... It's a constant reminder of the ideal that the church is called to embody, the church of like the local church, but also the wider church. So I think when we wear it, wow, what like a greater reminder of this idea that Peter says about being clothed in humility when we are actually wearing a representation to the world of what our king, our humble king did. And that's represented in that logo. So I just invite you when you see it, and you see it on clothing, you see it around our church, just to, to recall that to mind. And finally, this Advent season and always, let's be people like John who spread the good news. And a key way that Mark frames his understanding of John the Baptist is by positing him as a forerunner to Jesus the messenger that was sent ahead as a prophet to prepare others. But similarly to John, we all have a role in preparing for Jesus and we are all invited to announce and proclaim the good news to others. People want to hear about the source of our hope. And that's our neighbours, our co-workers, our loved ones, even our enemies. Coupled with this, not only are we to proclaim and share what is good and the source of our hope, uh, but we are required to demonstrate through lives that we live so fully how free we are through the personal relationship that we have with Jesus. It should be contagious. To the rest of the world, we should look and act just like we are. And that's, we are loved sinners wouldn't it be amazing if people looked at Christians, looked at people that follow Jesus, and <laughs> they were drawn in, that they said, like, whatever that light is that you carry, I am so curious. I want that. That's what I want. 
I want that light. I want to become like you. I want to be a loved sinner. So beginning next February, we are opening up Alpha Tables throughout our community. And we've talked a little bit about Alpha um, over the years, but we are making a commitment uh, as part of the rhythms and the nature of our church to always have these Alpha Tables uh, as part of our offering. An Alpha group, it provides a space for honest conversation around some of life's biggest questions. It's designed for people who are curious about faith. Perhaps they're, they're just weighed down with questions. They don't know who to ask, but the one thing they need is a really safe, really supportive way to ask those questions. I look around and I, I can see folks that like their lives were changed by Alpha. Their lives were changed by Alpha. And our hope is that many folks from outside our church walls would join a table and begin a journey towards learning more about the Christian faith. So this Alpha table, it's just one example of a way that we can share with others the good news. It's how we can play a part in preparing the way for them to encounter Jesus, often for the first time. You'll be hearing more about Alpha and how to invite people in January. So when I look around this room, one of the privileges of being one of your pastors is that uh, I get to hear your arrival stories. <laughs> I get to know, uh, for many of you, how it was that you first came, not just to the Evanston Vineyard, but also to faith. And that's one of my greatest joys is to hear that story, whether that's at like a jubilee, right? It's 50 years following Jesus. Or whether that means that you just walked in yesterday. Everyone has an arrival story. We didn't come packaged in the building. Isn't that wild? People just keep joining. And uh, when I look around and I think about arrival stories, one of the things that many of us have in common was that we answered a personal invitation to come to church. Uh, the family that were lighting their candles for Advent, um, the reason that I stepped in the door was because 11 years ago, December 9, 2012, my neighbor Tish was preaching this exact week of Advent. And uh, I joke, but it's also really serious. <laughs> Our fences are very short. <laughs> so I thought it would be really awkward to like not come when she invited me, because I'd have to keep seeing this lady at my house. Uh, so I said, yeah, I'll come, okay. And uh, that was the beginning of, like, the trajectory of my life being transformed, just by stepping into this space. And uh, I think that's just one example of, like, the abundant good life and good news that uh, is just waiting for people to discover. And we can have a part in that by, like, the simplest thing, or just being people that are invitational and then trusting the Holy Spirit to just do whatever he wants to do and take it from there. And so I think that's what the Lord has for me, um, to be part of the work of preparing the way for people all over Australia to encounter and receive the radical love of the Father. So let me invite Ted up.